This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, September 20th, 2007. I'm Caleb Brown. Nearly a year after the Duke lacrosse rape case fell apart, the question remains, how did our justice system allow three men to be so publicly impugned for a crime they clearly didn't commit? National Journal reporter Stuart Taylor is co-author of the book, Until Proven Innocent, Political Correctness and the Shameful Injustices of the Duke lacrosse Rape Case. In addition to chronicling the events that led up to the collapse of the case, he also suggests a few remedies that may prevent prosecutorial abuses surrounding a false rape claim in the future. Well, Mike Nifong, the um, chief prosecutor of the district attorney, the chief villain, uh, knew what I've just described or was in a position to know it from the beginning. Nonetheless, uh, in, in the face of this and other evidence that she was lying, on March 27th, he began, a, for the purpose of winning an election, a huge demagogic, almost unprecedented campaign of vilifying these kids as rapists, as racists, as louts, uh, leading to the indictments that came on April 17th. This dragged out for a while. Now, the media at the very beginning, uh, and everyone else, had good reason to think, well, gee, you know, prosecutors don't usually do that unless they've got the evidence, and therefore it was pretty logical, presumption of innocence to be sure, um, it was pretty logical to assume at the beginning that he must have the evidence. But that that kind of stopped uh, pretty soon a, a series of things that would have alerted any careful reporter to the fishy nature of these accusations uh, began to happen almost from the beginning the first uh, came on March 28th, when after several days of silence, the four lacrosse players issued a statement, carefully lawyered, a public statement that said, among other things, we are innocent and the DNA, which is due any day, will prove our innocence. All of their DNA had been taken and the rape this woman had described, which has been publicly described, was extremely violent and every reason to think, well, if it happened, there will be DNA. Uh, they went way out on a limb because a rape, a lawyer will tell you, listen, if anyone had sex with this woman, we're going to have to argue it was consensual. If there's any DNA, that's our only defense, consensual sex. They threw that defense out the window because the lawyers were so confident after interviewing all these players, after doing a photographic timeline, uh, well, a smart reporter would have listened to that and would have listened to the lawyers saying the same thing publicly a couple of days later and would have said, wait a minute. They seem awfully confident. <laughs> I mean, yes, sure, lawyers always say my client didn't do it. And then there were a succession of other events, the most dramatic of which was on April 12th, no, April 10th of 2006, about two weeks after it became a big story. Um, the DNA results, which the prosecutor had had for two weeks, uh, were made public by the defense. He had to give them the defense. The defense had a big press conference, and they said, well, when the DNA was taken from these men under a court order, the application for the court order said, if they are innocent, the absence of the DNA will prove their innocence. No DNA, no case. That's what the prosecutor's office said. And the defense said, well, we now know there was no DNA. None of their DNA was found anywhere on or in this woman. Case closed. But it wasn't closed because the prosecutor uh, who had known this was coming, had instantly, had instantly said DNA doesn't mean anything uh, once, uh, once he knew that, had started saying that they maybe they used condoms, which wasn't true, 
And the media, which dutifully reported this press conference, uh, most of them immediately rushed off to explanations, implausible explanations, as to how maybe the, she was raped anyway, even if there was no DNA. In cases like this, where perhaps a prosecutor might have a better case, is the fact that someone who is elected, as some prosecutors are, is that just a cost of doing business for institutions that are by nature public? Well, we have safeguards against uh, these kinds of abuses. They don't work very well, and this case points to the need for reforms. One safeguard are the rules against pretrial publicity. What prosecutor did in this case from the beginning was open and flagrant violation both of their constitutional rights and most specifically of the North Carolina rules of professional responsibility for lawyers. Uh, prosecutors and defense lawyers, for that matter, are not supposed to stand up and proclaim the guilt of people, let alone to elaborate on it in an inflammatory way. Uh, they're not supposed to hold them up to unnecessary condemnation. Those words are verbatim from the code. And if we had more bar discipline of prosecutors who do that, as was belatedly done in this case, but if it had been done right at the beginning as it should have been, uh, that would be a safeguard. Another safeguard, theoretically, are grand juries uh, or probable cause hearings before judges. Uh, theoretically, the, the prosecutor has to put his evidence in front of a neutral adjudicatory body, adjudicatory body of some kind, a judge or, or grand jury, and let it stand the test of skeptical uh, questioning. However, in North Carolina and most states, uh, the prosecutor con completely controls the grand jury. In this case, two dishonest cops were the only people who testified to the grand jury. They were not direct witnesses to any of the events. There's no obligation under North Carolina law or Supreme Court constitutional precedent to tell grand juries exculpatory evidence. And, uh, and there's no opportunity for the defendant to go into the grand jury and say, hey, I didn't do it. Listen to my story. Uh, a lot of grand jury reforms uh, could be done in North Carolina and should be done in elsewhere that would at least provide some protection against what was done to these kids. Hawaii, I believe, is one of the few states, perhaps the only state, that allows grand juries to hire their own outside counsel. Do you think that's an appropriate remedy? Uh, I didn't know that. I think that's a little bit elaborate, maybe unnecessarily elaborate, and it would depend on the grand jury having people who would take the initiative to do that. That would be an unusual person, I think. Maybe it's a good idea, but I, I, would, I would focus on uh, states ought to adopt laws that say prosecutors are obliged to show grand jury exculpatory evidence. Indictment, you should be able to get an indictment thrown out because the prosecutor failed to do that. Uh, states should have laws, and I think New York has such a law, that the defendant and his lawyer have an absolute right to be in the grand jury, and the defendant has an absolute right to testify in the grand jury. And there are other, um, there, are, there need to be transcripts. North Carolina doesn't keep transcripts. Uh, and there are a number of other safeguards that uh, the Innocence Project lays some of them out. I think the uh, National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers lays some out in detail on its website. Uh, but there are lots of um, reforms and, and, and few states that have adopted them. But prosecutors and police are law enforcement agents. I think it's reasonable to expect them to seek indictments even when they know that later that indictment may fall apart. Well, it's not a, what I'm suggesting wouldn't guarantee fairness, but it would 
it would tell a prosecutor who does what this prosecutor did, if he violated those obligations to give the grand jury exculpatory evidence, for example, uh, then he would know that he could be um, not only have his case thrown out, because sooner or later it's likely to come out. In this case, it certainly was, because North Carolina does have one good law. It's called open file discovery. Everything in the prosecutor's file has to be handed over to the defense, not just exculpatory stuff so that they can't play games about what's exculpatory, everything. Uh, what gave me confidence to write the book in this case that nothing had happened was I got a hold of those files, and it was astonishing how little was in them, uh, how much little of inculpatory and how much exculpatory. Uh, another thing, if, if the prosecutor violates those obligations, that's a disbarable offense. At least it ought to be. Stuart Taylor is co-author of the book Until Proven Innocent, Political Correctness and the Shameful Injustices of the Duke LaCrosse Rape Case. This is the Cato Daily Podcast. More podcasts are available at our website, cato.org.